As I've mentioned on previous episodes of this show, criticism is an inherently subjective endeavor. I feel that's self-evident, but we should keep reminding ourselves of that. One's verdict on a work of art usually reveals more about the speaker than about the artwork being described. Speaking on a personal level, I have a weakness for aesthetic composition. I have, while watching some movies, gaped in wonder at certain film scenes merely because they were shot well. I will forgive lazy writing, bad acting, indifferent music, corny special effects, and other various shortcomings in a film if it looks gorgeous. So, with that in mind, I can't tell if Loving Vincent is a great film because I'm just overwhelmed by how pretty it is. That's one of the reasons why I've decided to cover it for this particular episode of the show. We're going to be going into Loving Vincent, picking it apart, going into the various obvious details about why it's noteworthy, and so on and so forth. My name is Ryan, Surreal Deep Dive. Joining me for this one is my sister Cheryl. Hello Cheryl, welcome back once more. Yay, thank you so much for having me again in my apartment. Yes, I came here and ate your food and drank your wine and made you watch this movie. I mean, you've heard about it beforehand, but I believe this is your first time watching it through. Yeah, it was my first time actually sitting down to see it. And I kind of appreciate that my artistic brother came over, drank my wine, ate my food, and then we watched the Vincent Van Gogh movie. Yeah, before we delve into it further, you were talking throughout uh, about your personal relationship with the work of uh, Van Gogh, and um, in particular, the Doctor Who episode. (laughs) I swear I've converted more Whovians with that episode than anything else. If you are not a Whovian, Doctor Who is, of course, a Time Lord who travels through space and time and interacts with historical figures and whatnot. And there's this very poignant scene where he takes Vincent van Gogh to the modern day and subjects him to an art critic who deconstructs what a genius he is. And it just moves him beyond words. It it, it is a lovely scene. I haven't actually seen the episode it's in context with, but it it does a number on people. Uh, Your roommate, Senti, just mentioned that the clip alone brought tears to her eyes. Oh yeah, it converted her. She watched Doctor Who like season um season by season just to get to that episode. But you know, being an artist, you like Van Gogh outside of the context of Doctor Who as well. Oh yeah. Like I... just before we started, you were talking about how important he was to you while you were developing your own, you know, appreciation for art. Yeah, absolutely. Honestly, I also have a huge connection with Vincent Van Gogh because of the, um, you know, I've struggled with mental health my whole life and my nephew's super important to me. Yeah, you started out as like a Salvador Dali nerd when you were like middle school, early high school, and then Van Gogh. And then, oh, yeah. No, that was elementary because I was a fucking nerd that needed to brag. I was like, oh, you like Dr. Seuss? Well, I like Salvador Dali. Yeah, we're all like this. <laughs> Before we start talking about the film, I thought we'd give a basic background of Vincent Van Gogh. I mean, gave a basic background of the Super Mario Brothers, so I think like an actual person deserves some a little bit. So, in case you're clicking on this, despite the fact that you know absolutely nothing about him whatsoever and need a very broad strokes guideline... Vincent van Gogh is a Dutch post-impressionist painter. Uh, Post-impressionism, it's a vague term, intentionally, but in a nutshell, it means that uh, the post-impressionists were dissatisfied with the structural limitations and the quotidian subject matter found in the then-prevalent Impressionist movement. We're talking roughly the 1890s. 
This is a blanket term for a wide variety of painters who basically took the Impressionist Melu and expanded beyond that or did things in contrast to it. You know, like regular 90s kids. Yeah, this includes George Seurat and his pointillism, Paul Cezanne, and Paul Gauguin. Van Gogh is arguably the most prominent of them. Uh, after stints as an art dealer and a missionary that didn't work out quite well, Van Gogh took up painting. For the last decade of his life, he produced about 2,100 artworks, including 860 oil paintings. He only sold one over the course of his life. Van Gogh started out doing Impressionist-style landscapes, but he is noteworthy for after his exposure to, you know, Pizarro and Gauguin and so forth, using arbitrary color choices that reflected his emotional state rather than tangible reality. Oh yeah, right in the heart, my kind of guy. Yeah, he would occasionally work paint onto the canvas without mixing it beforehand. My kind of guy! Van Gogh struggled financially, living off his younger brother, Theo. He was subject to manic fits and depressive episodes, self-medicating with alcohol. He died by self-inflicted gunshot wound to the stomach at the age of 37. Van Gogh's suicide made him famous. A few decades after his death, Fauvist and German Expressionist painters hailed Van Gogh as a hero to their burgeoning movements. Van Gogh is now one of the most famous painters of his era. His tragic life, mental illness, substance abuse, bitter poverty have been romanticized into a melodrama centering upon a misunderstood genius. More on that later. There has, however, been speculation over whether or not Van Gogh's fatal gunshot wound was self-inflicted. And this is the basis of the plot of Loving Vincent. While we were about halfway through the film, Cheryl brought up, Hey, do you know that uh, there's some speculation over whether or not Van Gogh actually killed himself? And it was like, yeah, they're getting to that. <laughs> I don't remember if it was 60 minutes or what, but uh, I got so excited. Well, not excited, you know, because it's sad, but a few months. Probably years. Oh, God, what is time? <laughs> I saw the, the episode on it. I was like, wait, what? I'm like, oh, so now he's not necessarily going to be viewed as a martyr anymore. That's wonderful. People can appreciate him for his talent and like his like huge encompassing, like beautiful words, like gorgeous letters. Yeah, because the speculation made it to 60 minutes, I believe. Okay, so that must have been the one that I saw. It yeah. was so good, though. And with that out of the way, let's get into the plot of the film. Set about a year after Van Gogh's death, postman Joseph Roland asks his son Armand to deliver Van Gogh's final letter to his brother Theo. Armand is a bit of a roustabout. He doesn't really think much of Van Gogh. He gets into a fist fight just for perceived slights. This happens throughout the film. He's reluctant to comply, but goes along with his father's request eventually. Picks him up after a hard night of drinking. Over the course of their conversation, Roland expresses doubt over the official account of Van Gogh's suicide. He remarks that weeks before his death, Van Gogh appeared calm and normal and wrote a letter to him basically saying that exactly. Armand heads to Paris and speaks with art supplier uh, Pere Tangui, who reveals that Theo died six months after Vincent and therefore the letter is undeliverable in that context. He suggests that Armand travel to uh, Ovres. Uh, Sir Oyson speak to Dr. Paul Gachet, a physician who housed and cared for Vincent after his last stay at a sanitarium. Gachet is out when Armand arrives, so he stays at the inn that Van Gogh himself frequented. The inn's proprietress, Adeline Raveau, tells Armand to question the local boatman, who informs him that Van Gogh was close to Dr. Gachet's sheltered daughter, Marguerite. He totally lived in those boats, right? I'm assuming he had a house that he went to when he was done fishing and renting his boats out. 
Then why was he there in the middle of the night by that fire? Mm-hmm. Drinking, looking up at the stars. That sounds pretty romantic. Yeah, we're going to get into a lot of grandiloquent and grandiose melodrama because loving Vincent it just engenders that within you. Not only is the aesthetic of the film incredibly heightened because it's based upon Vincent Van Gogh's work, but there was also that soundtrack that is just completely throwing everything towards the cheap seats. It is not subtle in any way whatsoever. Oh, I am just, I'm brimming. I'm overflowing with emotions from this evening. Armand briefly speaks with Marguerite, but she is angered at the implication that Van Gogh's suicidal ideation was augmented by an argument with her father. While nosing around, Armand begins to suspect that local boy Rene's uh, secretan was responsible for Van Gogh's death. He liked to bully the sullen, unresisting Van Gogh and was prone to waving a gun around because he liked to drink and imagine that he was a Wild West gunman. Dr. Not Vincent, by the way, just... Yeah, Rene. That was Rene. Yeah, that was Rene, if that wasn't clear. Dr. Mazury, who examined Van Gogh after he was wounded, claims that the shot came from a few feet away, making suicide improbable. He would have to fire a revolver with his toe in order for the wound to make sense. And it wasn't a through-and-through. It also wasn't a through-and-through, which, you know, at point-blank range was unlikely, even when we're talking about old-ass and late-19th-century revolvers. Or it, it might have been, I think it was a pistol. Uh, when Armand implicates Rene, Marguerite chimes in to insist that the boy is incapable of murder. She adds that she did in fact have a close bond with Van Gogh, but insists that it was platonic. Dr. Gachet returns to his home and promises to deliver the letter to Theo's widow. When asked about his relationship with Van Gogh, Dr. Gachet admits that they had an explosive argument where Van Gogh called him a coward for abandoning his artistic ambitions for a secure income in medicine. Gachet countered with an assertion that Vincent's dependency on Theo's money was responsible for the deterioration of Theo's health. A very guilty Dr. Gachet blames this remark for Van Gogh's suicide. After Armand returns home, and because of his devotion to seeking out the truth, he has lost his job in the interim, forcing him to take a position in the military. Roland receives a word from Theo's widow, Johanna, thanking them for their efforts. Attached is a copy of the letter that Van Gogh wrote to Theo, which is signed at the end, Your Loving Vincent. And that is the film. Okay, let's get into the development of the film, because a lot went into this. Like, looking at this film for four seconds, you can realize how incredibly fussed over the whole thing is. Oh yeah, it's overwhelmingly gorgeous. This was initially conceived as a seven-minute short film in 2008. Writer, co-director Dorada Cobela came up with this story while studying Van Gogh's painting techniques and reading his letters. The film was funded by the Polish Film Institute and supplemented by a Kickstarter campaign. The animation for this film, uh, Cobiella wanted classically trained oil painters rather than traditional animators. She felt that they would be less apt to insert their personal idiosyncrasies into the art. After an online advertisement, they received 5,000 applicants. Uh, 125 painters were chosen. They hailed from 20 different countries, and about 60% of them were women. Woohoo! We've talked about rotoscoping before on previous episodes. Yeah! This film is also rotoscoped. The process was that the live-action cast was shot in front of a green screen. The editors then composited Van Gogh paintings into scene backgrounds and cut the film together as if it was a normal film. And then, 
Afterwards, each frame of the film was shot onto a blank canvas, which the artist would then paint over with oils. The artist would then touch up existing paintings after each individual frame was photographed. The film has 65,000 frames, and 853 paintings were made. A fly got caught onto the wet paint for one image, and it is visible in the movie if you look for it. Oh my god, what scene? I don't know. I I tried to look up which frame it it was in, but no YouTube video or Google image search told me. I looked for it while I was watching the movie, and I couldn't spot it. But apparently it's there somewhere. Talk about an Easter egg. The process took six years to complete, which you were surprised it didn't take even longer because, oh boy. Yeah, but like, oil paints in me don't have a loving relationship. They take forever to dry. Yes, it does. Although that would make it a little quicker for the artist to touch up the paintings, you know, after they shoot one and you and transitioning to another bit, you know, the painting is still wet. Yeah, I, I appreciate oil paints, like paintings. I just hate oil paints. As the film itself boasts, and every account I've read about this film mentions, this is the first fully hand-painted animated movie. Producer, co-director Hugh Welchman claimed that they had, without a doubt, and I'm quoting here, invented the slowest form of filmmaking (laughs) ever devised in 120 years. (laughs) He's not wrong. It was worth it. It was so worth it. Throughout the film, they lift a lot of Vincent van Gogh paintings and insert them into the storytelling, particularly the image of the church. That's one of your favorite paintings. Yep, that one and the almond blossoms, which I understand why they couldn't put that in there. I am personally very fond of the uh, interior of the bar and billiard rooms, which is early on in the film. It's like, oh, I know that one. (laughs) Of course, the most famous Van Gogh painting is Starry Night, and that's their opening money shot. When you're still not, like, adjusted to what this film is going to do to you, it opens with Starry Night, and Starry Night is moving at you. And, yeah, it just knocks you on your ass. Oh, yeah, it's like um, the first time you see the Yellow Submarine movie as a kid where you're like, but the, all the colors are rolling. I don't know what to look at. <laughs> there are a number of black and white flashback scenes. None of those are taken from Van Gogh paintings. Most of them are based on period photographs. Those are also incredibly beautiful. Oh, absolutely. I loved the end credits sort of like give you like a chance to appreciate them a bit more. Okay, the reception of this film. It had a budget of $5.5 million, which seems pretty low. I guess that's part of the reason why it took so long for them to make it. It made $42.1 million, which is a healthy profit for them. It made $10 million in China alone. Apparently the Chinese were into this, at least the art house crowd. Awesome. The reviews for this were mostly positive. It got incredibly high praise for its innovation and its painstaking animation technique. It is impossible to watch this film and not be impressed by it. I think I'm too much of a fangirl because like part of me was immediately offended when you said mostly positive. I'm like, why not? <laughs> I mean, the main reason they mentioned that it was hand-painted every frame at the beginning of the film just just so you could be impressed by that however even if they had come up with some kind of computer technique to make it happen that still will require a lot of painstaking effort this would have bowled me over even if it was cgi oh yeah no doubt no doubt No, there was some criticism for the film, mostly for its storytelling. Some believe that it had an over-reliance on narration and uh, heavy-handed emotional overbearingness. 
uh, which I can't entirely rule out. This film is very talky, and there are lots of scenes where Armand is interviewing somebody, and they just start monologuing about Vincent Van Gogh's life and his emotions and how they feel he went through certain things. And I can see why some people would find that a little off-putting, especially since film is supposedly a visual medium. There is a lot of voiceover, and more than a few film critics consider voiceover to be lazy cheating. I'm going to defend the movie on that point, uh, in that it is a very overwhelming visual style, and without like a very firm, grounded audio track to go along with it, I would have definitely got lost. Yeah, I can see where you're coming from from there. That being said, I have more than once thought to myself, would I like this film as much as I do if it was live action, or am I just incredibly enraptured by how gorgeous these oil paintings are? Getting back to my intro. <laughs> <laughs> I know I wouldn't like it as much if it was live action. I almost certainly wouldn't like it as much if it was live action. I probably still would be able to sit through it and have positive thoughts about it. This film won uh, Best Animated Feature at the European Film Awards. It was nominated for Best Animated Feature at the Academy Awards, but it lost to Coco. I mean, Coco's a really good movie. I can't, I can't fight against that too hard, but really, it was hand-painted. I mean, if it was up to me, I probably would have given it to Loving Vincent, but I'm not knocking Coco. Coco deserves its accolades. It's a good movie. But yeah, it was also up against Ferdinand and the Boss Baby, and fuck those movies. Okay, with that brought off, let's talk about the themes a little bit. First thing I want to talk about is this film's insistence on romanticizing the tortured artist, which I have ambivalent feelings about. Yeah, yeah. Now, I personally believe that a happy, mentally stable artist tends to be more consistent and productive, both in terms of, you know, being prolific and also in terms of quality. However, human nature is drawn to tragedy. As is pointed out, that the film tries to say that Van Gogh was something of a rising star in the Belle Epoque, and that if he hadn't died, maybe people would have realized that he was a gifted, talented artist. At the same time, the cult of personality surrounding him happened immediately after his death. It is not entirely outside the realm of plausibility that if he had lived to an old age and painted throughout, he would have died anonymously and nobody would have considered him a big deal. One can't say. But that idea that he was a misunderstood genius who was unrecognized in his day does lend a certain degree of mythos to him. And I can understand that. We have built a lot of stories over human civilization around the idea that death waits for us all and the only thing we can really do is to rise against it, scream pointlessly, and carve out some kind of arbitrary little victory, whether you're talking about Siegfried or the Monkey King or Vincent van Gogh. I'm not trying to stop you. I'm enjoying this. Keep going. Uh, I, I was waiting for you to uh, come in with some kind of rejoinder there. I mean, honestly, like Vincent Van Gogh, what his paintings mean to me, the reason I love the Almond Blossom so much, is um, no matter like how low his lows were, what I always found truly touching and inspiring by it was that he kept trying. Like that that's the Almond Blossom painting for me, is that it's, yeah, sometimes you get knocked off your ass, sometimes you have to go to the hospital. But like, I mean, he painted that while he was in the hospital. Like he, he got back up and it's so hopeful and beautiful. 
and getting back to iconic symbols of our struggle against inevitability, rolling a boulder up a hill. <laughs> Yay, Sisyphus! It's pointless, but he keeps doing it. Yay! No, but it's beautiful! I Okay. <laughs> Or another thing I wanted to bring up is giving bonus points to art that breaks new ground. In recent years, I've really dug into the German Expressionists, and not a one of them is as well known as Vincent van Gogh, because pretty much all of them are just continuing with his lead. And it took a while for them to admit to that, because they all wanted to see themselves as original. However, you know, uh, eventually, you know, the bridge painters were like, yes, Van Gogh is the father to us all. We, we we can't say that he isn't. And I think that extends to Loving Vincent itself, because this film is very prominent, and people sought it out, because nothing quite like this has ever happened before. I think it's fair to say. Oh yeah, it's startling the first time you even like see it. Or even the trailer for it, I remember. Yeah, I looked up the trailer for on YouTube and I was just like, wow. And the very instant it appeared on Hulu, I may I carved out time for it. A related point I wanted to discuss was the allure of a product that looks handmade and fussed over. I mentioned earlier that if this film was made in a similar technique with computers, it would still be impressive, but I don't think people would have made quite as big a deal out of it. The idea that someone dug in with their hands and spent hours and hours and years of their very finite time on the sphere making it happen, that has an effect on people looking at it. And just the idea that they took Van Gogh paintings and made them move and replicated his techniques and even like little details. Like I always loved the way that Van Gogh, whenever he did portraits, he would highlight someone's lighting with like green, even though that doesn't make any sense outside of, you know, expressionistic lighting techniques that hadn't existed in the 1890s. I mean, yeah, no, I get that. Like um, you're going with, you're talking about like the, the cool undertones and some of the skin tone and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry. It's just, you're talking about the movie again, and, like, it's so humbling. I'm still sitting here just being like, ooh. Uh, yeah, well, another related thing. I, I really like stop-motion animated films, which are also incredibly painstaking. And I will give Coraline points that I wouldn't give to Coco, even though they're both excellent stories that are well told, because somebody built a little figurine of Coraline and then took a picture of it and then moved it a little bit and then took another picture of it. And once again, the CGI artists work very hard, and I'm not saying that it's a lesser form of art or anything, but just the idea that you can still see the thumbprints in it, that does something uh, to me. Yeah, there's like a, a moment where you're just sort of like, because oh, like it's something tangible that you can touch. Like, I get what you're talking about. It, yeah, leads me to dovetail into, I would say, the limitations of realism, which I've discussed this when we did German Expressionist films on previous episodes. Around the late 19th century, when photography started becoming a lot cheaper, that started stifling portrait painting, leading to fine art painters to redefine the parameters of what fine art is supposed to be. If a wealthy aristocrat isn't going to sit down nearly as often to have their portrait taken because they can just take a photograph and it's less expensive and less painstaking, what's the point of painting anymore? And they had to find a new meaning for it. And that led to the Impressionists, who were just trying to like capture a moment in time. And that then pushed the post-Impressionists and all the various isms to mine the psychological depths that are inside all of us and try to transfer that to the canvas meaningfully. Gives me shivers! I love it! Aristotle 
mentioned that art is imitation, which in his day it definitely was, but Aristotle's wrong about a lot of things. Art can begin with imitation, but I don't think it ends with imitation. I believe that it, it gives you the perspective of how the artist themselves sees the world, which is more than just imitative, it is also reflective. And uh, that brings me to, because I'm a comics guy, anecdote involving the great comic book artist Jack Kirby, where someone approached him at an art gallery uh, and talked to him about how, you know, all these artists are trying to replicate reality and how they all fall short. And Kirby responded that replicating reality is no big thing. A camera can do that. But to transcend reality, that's another thing altogether. And that's what an artist should go for, including photographers. And yeah, that's something I wanted to bring up during this episode at some point. Sorry, I'm just, my brain's ticking over that quote. I like it a lot. And that that, that sort of reflects uh, Kirby's artistic discipline, which is not even remotely realistic, but I'm getting off topic. That is also Van Gogh, because Van Gogh stuff does not reflect reality. Unless you have specialty lighting, a person's skin is not going to have green undertones usually. But when you look at it, it sort of gives you an idea, I think. No, you 100% use green in, people, like in, in painting. If you're trying to, if you're a very white person, you have green in your skin. Not Van Gogh green. No, that's true. Like, that's an exaggeration. But you use green to, like, do, like, the cooling parts of the the face. Yeah, that's fair. Okay, well, that's the entirety of my notes. Is there anything about loving Vincent that you would like to add before we sign off? Oh, I'm such a nerd for Vincent. Like, um, it's tough. It's tough. Um, I definitely agree with your whole, like, we are the lens through which we see the world. And that sort of interpretation is important to be put into art. Like, I, But, like, in regards to the movie, I mean, I don't know. It just made me feel like, yeah, and fire it up. It just makes you really want to, like, do something creative. Which is an odd takeaway for some people, because this is an incredibly painfully sad movie. Well, I mean, yeah, but that's Vincent Van Gogh. It's it's beauty in the sadness, right? Yeah. Okay. And with that, I didn't think it was going to be this short of an episode, but it is. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another film.